and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. You want to get questions to me? That's the best way to do it. Uh, okay, so tried something new this week. Did a live stream on um, Thursday night. Didn't announce it first because we weren't sure it was going to stream properly to my channel. We had it streaming to three different YouTube channels at the same time. And it was just a discussion about Stefan Molyneux and um, some of his more outrageous tweets. And we sort of uh, had a good ribbing time with that. It wasn't any sort of like, you know, it wasn't intended to be some deep conversation or critical analysis. And I think that disappointed a couple people. But, you know, it was just something I thought uh, might be fun to collaborate with other YouTube creators. Um, these ones uh, in particular are part of the uh, sort of atheist skeptic community. And, uh, and I've been having a good time talking with these people, having some of them on my podcast, and I thought we could do some live streaming, and it's going to be a little random, and uh, see how that goes. So this was the first one I will try as I go and develop this to um, give announcements or heads up or something. And if this turns out to be wildly unpopular and nobody likes what I'm doing with this, then I'll, I'll stop doing it. <laughs> um, so anyway, just an idea of something else to throw some content out there and also let you guys know in a more spontaneous way, maybe reactions to current events or social issues or things that are part of the so of the you know current dialogue right now that I don't get a chance to address as quickly or as uh, fluidly or spontaneously in my podcast or my Q and A show. So that's kind of the point of that, and and we'll see if uh, if anybody wants to watch that. So. Uh, also did a did a uh, I thought a pretty fun podcast this week, pretty interesting one, on the topic of intersection uh, intersectionality, and this is a social issue, um, you know, more so than a cult issue. But there is a ton of um, media about and criticism of intersectionality because of some of its more extreme proponents. And so I did want to address some of that. And is it is the subject any good or or what you know? And so I have a, a doctor of sociology on with me uh, to do that, Mark Horowitz. So I hope you guys will check that podcast out. Now let's get on with your questions. Kevin Zay, are people who get involved in MLMs and then recruit others into their downline victims or perpetrators? Well, this is an interesting question. A lot of this depends on viewpoint, of course, but um, I guess if you were going to sort of step back and look at, you know, what are the actions that people are doing and stuff, I, I am going to say first that I think there's a lot more victim going on here than there is perpetrator, even when they, you know, are now foisting their uh, their belief system or their or the con or whatever the the mechanism of the MLM is to for profit making you know that's what they're now doing I think um, this is a case where uh, it does matter to get the answer to the question does this person really believe in what they're doing or not you know with cult leaders I don't know that it matters so much but with um, I mean, it, it, you know, we can talk about it and it certainly will affect their, you know, judgment and things like that. But, uh, but with the cult leaders, at the end of the day, you know, that's, they're cult leaders. So whether they really believe in what they're doing or not, it doesn't change the fact that they're engaged, that they're abusing people. That's, you know, part of the cult um, model uh, is this abuse thing, right? 
with the members abusing the members, and I guess, you know, we'll say, okay, so recruiting others into their downline, right? I guess that means being part of the of the stream of, of income, you know, that goes from the lower to the higher to the higher, and it's this whole little pyramid thing. Um, I, you know, if I would say that you have a perpetrator there, if the person who's doing the selling, who is getting, who is recruiting people, is aware of the fact that what they're recruiting people into is a, a criminal activity or is a not on the up and up or there's a sales con going on here. I think that's the point where you are, uh, are, are sort of crossing a, a line, right? If, you, if you're aware of the fact that you're cheating people, that's, you know, obviously a perpetrator role, not a victim role. Um, but if you truly believe in the product, I mean, I look at myself and I, you know, I'm going to look at my Scientology experience with this. I've, I've not done MLMs or, you know, multi-level marketing, but I, uh, but I did Scientology. So, and I was, I was for a period of time, I was actually a salesperson. And then later on, I was a recruiter recruiting people for staff in the Sea Org. So I did that work out of an honest effort to want to help the planet. I mean, I was not in a frame of mind of I'm getting people in and what I'm doing to them is taking advantage of them, abusing, you know, opening them up for abuse. That, that, that was no part of the thinking of what I thought I was doing. So, you know, was I perpetuating the con of Scientology? Absolutely I was. Um, you know, in some sense, every single person in Scientology or in these cults who at all even walks around and talks about it is perpetuating the con. Um, so I think, so for me, I think the moral point of decision is to, vic you know, when you go from victim to perpetrator is when you have an awareness. Uh, see, even if you're still a believer in the product, but you know that what these people are going to get you know, it's substandard, isn't going to be what was promised. Uh, you have to lie to them. You know, this was the, as I've said in the past, this was one of the, the break points for me with Scientology and the Sea Org was that I knew I'd, I got to a point where suddenly the light bulb went on and I was like, oh my God, I'm actually lying to people more than I'm telling them the truth. You know, and the, and, and the kind of the rationalizations of that went away. So had I continued at that point... You know, then I, then I, then there would be certainly moral issues there uh, to address. But that was the point where I went, oh no, I, I'm, I'm done. I can't do this anymore, and I couldn't. So, hope that answers the question. Thanks for it, Kevin. Charlotte Sloat. My son and his girlfriend got into Dianetics and other stuff in Scientology a while back, and she got bad in it. And he looked online and got lucky right away with yours and others' videos. Thank you for that, by the way. He loves her. My question is, will Scientologists keep trying to get you in if you keep hanging out with them? I'm worried he will get sucked back in. The short answer is yes, they will. Um, Scientologists are not all fanatical. That's the Sea Org, right? That's where the fanaticism really sets in. But Scientologists are eager to share the good news, uh, you know, in a similar way to, you know, how newly converted Christians and Mormons and stuff, you know, they want to they spread the gospel. They want to spread the truth, right? Uh, Scientologists often feel that way, especially at the beginning, before they run into a few walls trying to help, you know, try to tell people about Scientology. Um, 
So, but, but there is always the thing in the back of a Scientologist's mind, no matter, you know, almost at what level Scientologist it is, they're always going to have this idea floating around every time they're talking to you, interacting with you. Boy, I wish this guy was a Scientologist. I wish this woman was a Scientologist. You know, they're always going to be thinking that. And they're going to want to, you know, is there some opportunity that opens up that they can disseminate to you, is the terminology in Scientology, right? When they want to proselytize to you, it's disseminating. Um, comes from plant, you know, spreading seeds uh, and, you know, and growing new versions of yourself, right? So, um, so that's the, that's the Scientology attitude about it. And they're supposed to be pretty gung-ho about it. They're supposed to be like, you know, eager beavers to get more people into Scientology. But like I said, they run into a few brick walls and they're not so eager beavers anymore. So, um, it depends a great deal on who the per who the Scientologist is, what kind of prior relationship the person had also, because that could be a factor. You know, if, if you have a couple people who are lifelong friends and then, you know, later in life one of them gets into Scientology, they're still going to have that base where they don't have any, you know, Scientology doesn't have to be uh, uh, the thing that they talk about or spend time doing or whatever. And, and, uh, and if one of, if the guy who's not a Scientologist says, hey, look, I'm just not interested, then he probably won't keep pushing the point. Um, on the other hand, maybe he would. You know, it, it all depends on the person. So, you know, as many scenarios as you can come up with, I guess we could find variations of this. But I would say in a general average sense, more Scientologists are going to be looking for and, and seeking out and, and trying to take advantage of opportunities to proselytize to non-Scientologists and get them in. Uh, there you go. Missy Lowe. If LRH really did make the OT 9, 10, and 11 and not Miscavige, what would you think of that? And would that change your thoughts in any way, even a little bit? Not a positive way, but just a, wow, he really did it kind of way. I know you'd still believe how you do. I'm just interested in what it would say and would it be some amazing thing to the church? Well, it certainly would be a find of some, you know, magnitude if, the, if OT 9, 10, and 11 were found and it was, you know, verifiably from L. Ron Hubbard. Uh, one, it would have, you know, historical interest uh, for sure. I mean, all of us would be very, very interested, I'm sure, in what it has to say, if, no, if for no other reason than just from a curiosity point of view. Also, um, you know, that meant he would have had to have uh, written it. Uh, while he was in seclusion in the 80s, so that would have that would have fit in there somewhere, and it would be interesting to find how that could have possibly been hidden away. But you know, I suppose anything's possible. Um, I, yeah, I could think about two or three different ways that that it could be that uh, that that such a thing could be discovered and hasn't been yet. You know, uh, that could be plausible. Uh, okay, so. You say here, um, yeah, just not, it, you're absolutely right. It would not affect or change my beliefs in any way uh, as far as Scientology goes. I don't think my response would be, wow, he really did it. I think it would be more like, huh, okay, well, let's see what, he, what, he, what, uh, what his last scribblings were. <laughs> you know, let's see what, see what the old man came up with. Um, might be interesting, you know. He might have gone off in some other crazy direction. And if so, then we'd have even more to talk about the goofy beliefs and, and all that stuff. So that's, uh, as far as the church Scientology itself goes, um, you know, if they found, uh, you know, 9, 10, and 11, 
uh, ooh, you know, that would be a, that would be a find. I mean, that would be, there would be a lot of people super electrified if they actually released that, I should say. See, everybody in Scientology thinks that it does exist, and they do have it, so it wouldn't be news, like, they wouldn't say, hey, we found it, you know, they wouldn't be doing that inside the church. But if they did get around to ever releasing it, uh, and it was, like I said, verifiably Hubbard's, um, that would be interesting. I, I know Scientologists would certainly be excited by that. Elizabeth Dresser. I know the rank-and-file Sea Org members live a very Spartan existence, and then at the other end you've got David Miscavige living like an emperor. Obviously someone like him wouldn't let anyone else live as well as he does, but do the other top executives get some taste of the high life? Hey, great question, Elizabeth. Yeah, they do. Um, and here is another actual control mechanism for David Miscavige with his inner circle and the people at international management or the people he's happened to be hanging around with for whatever reason. And, and that is that he will give and he will take. And he will give and he will take. But he will give. He doesn't just take. He doesn't just beat on people mercilessly and that's all the experience you have with him. You know, and this, this is, uh, I'm sure, relatable to battered wife syndrome and abusive relationships and couples um, because you have a husband or a wife, right, in these, these codependent relationships where they, um, there's kindness between the abuses, right? And Miscavige will do this. There, there are some rewards. There are some bonuses, financial bonuses. There's, you know, somebody gets a car or, a, or an SUV or something or a really nice watch or um, some token of appreciation that matters to them um, or a nice bonus or something, right? So those things sort of it, it's a dopamine thing. They, 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 there are, it, it changes the brain chemistry, right? And it, and it does it in such a way that you're never quite sure what it's going to be from day to day. Is, is today Miscavige's nice day or is today Miscavige's naughty day, right? Like, which, how's he going to be? If you don't know, it makes it worse, but it also keeps you hanging on with loyalty longer, because, and the optimum percent is 50%, 50% gain, 50% abuse. And if a person can be made to perceive that that's what's happening, then, um, you know, maybe you put some days off, you grant a couple days off every now and again, or you, you know, do something special at Sea Org Day, or, you know, some attaboy after some event or something. I mean, you just, just, a, just enough that you're maintaining this 50-50 roughly ratio. That would be the optimum way to keep people on a string and keep them being strung along and, um, and under your control. Uh, and these are the same percentages they, you know, they run in with gambling, stuff like that. I mean, these, this, is, this is established science. This is not, there's no mysteries to this, right? Uh, okay, so... Uh, in terms of those execs, yeah, they get to travel maybe, um, they get to stay in maybe nicer hotel rooms than the rank and file, they get treated with deference by all the rank and file, and that actually kind of is heady uh, at times, especially as you really move up the line and people, you know, everybody around is calling you sir and they're actually saluting and stuff. I mean, that's, you know, that doesn't happen often, but it's, it's a, you know, it's kind of a, ooh, so celebrity kind of feeling when it does. 
So, uh, so that is something that bolsters people's egos uh, at that level. And of course, remember that Scientology is all about status. And within, you know, outside, in the public world of Scientology, that status is measured by money that you've given and, and IAS ranks or OT levels and, you know, progress up the bridge. But in the C organization, it's measured by rank and it's measured by post being promoted up the line. Where, where are you at in the hierarchy? And everybody thinks they want to be at the very, very top until they get there and find out that it's, you know, hell on earth. So there you go. Russell Bradley. Hi, Chris. I love your show, and I think what you and others are doing to expose cults is really important. My question is if you've ever heard of sexual abuse or misconduct by LRH himself. Given how much his writings protect sexual abusers and how much power he had over his followers, it seems like something that might have happened. However, I don't remember ever hearing reports, even from people who worked with him closely back in the early days. Do you have any thoughts on this? Absolutely. Uh, okay, so starting earlier on in Hubbard's life, Hubbard was a dog. He was a serial philanderer. He cheated on his first wife routinely. Uh, he was often traveling away from her, going to New York or going around to places and sleeping around when he did so. Um, this is all alluded to or talked about in um, the biography of Hubbard, by the way, uh, written by Russell Miller, uh, Madman, not Madman or something, a barefaced messiah is what it's called. It's absolutely definitive uh, work on Hubbard's life. So, um, so in there he talks about that. Of course, Hubbard was um, married to his first wife, and then he got married to his second wife. He was a polygamist, uh, or sorry, bigamist. Uh, so that was, you know, pretty off the rails uh, in terms of his love life or sex life. Uh, it took a year for his second wife to even find out his first wife existed, and they got the divorce, and, uh, and then within, you know, a few years, she was also leaving him, and he hooked up with his third and final wife. Uh, after that, there's not really, um, I do, I'm not aware of Hubbard cheating on his third wife. I don't have any specific, like, verified reports that I can think of off the top of my head that, he, that I think after he married his third wife, I think Mary Sue kind of got him under control to some degree, to some degree on that. Um, it would not surprise me if I found out that he had cheated on Mary Sue. Um, you know, that, that wouldn't be like, oh my God, I can't believe that. I just don't have any evidence that he did. I know for sure that he did on his first and his second wives. Um, there are multiple reports of this um, through all the way through the Dianetics years. <clears throat> Excuse me. Hubbard uh, became a family man for real with his third wife. They settled down uh, to a degree. They had these, you know, had, I think he had four kids, five kids. Um, and he, and he, you know, and his wife loved those kids to death, and he had whatever, you know, feelings he did for the individual kids. So later in life, Sea Org happens, and um, come the 1970s, Hubbard develops this, this little core of messengers. Actually starts in the 60s. And, um, and these kids, literally little kids, grow up under Hubbard's tutelage and, um, and are hanging around him like, you know, they have eight hour watches, uh, eight to 12 hours, I think, 
um, on watch, you know, rotating, uh, watching Hubbard and caring for his every need. And this is bathing him and, you know, getting his clothes laundered and all, all kinds of stuff. So all those years, all those uh, girls who grew up to become women who are now ex-Sea Org members, ex-Scientologists, have two, every single one of them have said he never even remotely did anything um, sexually inappropriate with them while they were uh, girls or while they were uh, dealing with him. And I believe them. You know, it just wasn't Hubbard's thing late in life to, to be a pedophile or, or go after little girls. And that just wasn't, you know, his brand of crazy. He had other crazinesses going on. And quite honestly, physically, he might not have even been up to it. I don't really know. But he did suffer a couple strokes in the 70s. He um, he was not together, you know. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, you know, I mean, that's that's also a possibility as to why he just kind of, maybe his whole sex drive collapsed. I don't know. But regardless, that's the that's the data on that that I know, and I'm passing on to you. Brittany Gatchel, how does Scientology view sex? My question is if shame is associated with sexual activity in Scientology. How open are Scientologists to sexual exploration and knowledge? From what I've pieced together from what you've said in the past, Scientology's views on sexuality seem limiting and rigid, not to mention their view of LGBTQ+. Yeah, limiting and rigid would be good descriptive words for Scientology's views on sex, especially now, especially since, um, you know, I guess through the, the 80s, 90s, and, and now, where, uh, as I've mentioned many times, they kind of really clamped down. In the 60s and 70s, it was a much looser thing. There were not um, rules and regulations uh, a whole lot about conduct how, how people conduct themselves and it, it, when it comes to sex. Um, you know, Hubbard was uh, one to push the traditional marriage concept, and anything outside of that was perverted. While, you know, as my last answer, Hubbard was a serial philanderer and, you know, just a total dog. So it's kind of funny that he pushed that whole morality, but, you know, since when is hypocrisy something uh, new <laughs> in the area of sex? So. Uh, so yeah, so I've, I've said before many times that they have sort of a leave it to beaver type conservative attitude about sex, but I have to stress that this is, this is not, it's not like a uniform view of sex from the Sea Org all the way down to the public. There are public Scientologists who, you know, have all their copies of sex manuals and toys and this and that, and they don't really have a big thing about it, you know, but they are limited to the degree that they know that at some point in their life, probably sooner than later, because of the way Scientology auditing works, that they're going to be in security checks, confessionals, where they're going to be expected to answer sharp and pointed questions, deeply invasive and personal, about any aspect of their life, including their sex life. And if they are asked about things... Um, you know, and they don't particularly think there's anything wrong with masturbating or using toys or other positions or whatever it is that they might, you know, whatever their kink is or their their practices. You know, if they're into that stuff and they really don't have a thing on it and they really don't think it's that big of a deal, then it's probably not even going to register on the e-meter at all. And, um, and so it might never come up for them. Uh, okay. 
if they have some twinges of guilt and doubt and feel a guilty conscience, then they're going to feel compelled to have to talk about it in their sex checking, which means they're then going to feel like that's something they shouldn't be doing, and that's how the control works, okay? So, uh, and that's a big part of it. I mean, really, that whole little thing with the confessionals is all by itself, this, this wonderful control mechanism. Then when you add the guilt trips that the ethics guys put on you, because in some kinds of sex checks, you have to go see an ethics officer afterwards, and they have to go over with you a report that gets written about what you confess to. And so they're privy to all the dirty details of what you've confessed. And of course, in the sec check, they get time, place, form, and event. They get all the juicy details of what you've been up to. So this information goes to ethics, and then ethics might sit down with you and, okay, so you like the toys. Well, maybe uh, we're going to have to do something about that. And then you got to go home and throw them all away and you know, give some attestation that you are no longer, you know, that you're a good little angel now and you're not doing anything perverted. And that's kind of how it works, you know, for the public. At the Sea Org level, there isn't really any question about whether it's okay or not, right? Nobody in the Sea Org has toys. Nobody's into sexual variations and all that. That You know, people's sex life, I mean, when it comes down to actually being in the bedroom, they are left alone and they're private. But, um, but the whole confessional thing is always present. And, um, and the Sea Org lifestyle also heavily cuts across people's, um, you know, their metabolism, their energy level, their body budget's all out of whack, they're tired all the time. So their libido tends to dive pretty badly. And, um, and so Sea uh, Org members are also just not as interested in sex uh, because, frankly, they just don't have the energy for it as much, you know. Now, I know I'm, I'm not saying that that's everybody, and I'm just saying nobody in the Sea Org ever has, you know, d- doesn't ever have sex. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just saying that uh, on, a, on a long-term chronic level, I think what I just said is going to, you're going to find that's true, that Sea Org members are so exhausted most of the time that sex isn't the first, second, or even third thing on their mind when they go home at night. So... All right. Uh, Hope that gives you some data about this. Feel free to ask me anything more about it. Okay, guys. So that was our show this week. I hope uh, I tried to keep the answers a little tighter this week. Um, Keep the time down. I get uh, sometimes I get that my answers go on a little bit too much or I go on too long. So I'm trying to work on that. Anyway, I hope you found the question, the answers here uh, entertaining, informative, and um, educational. And if you did, consider supporting my channel through Patreon. I could definitely, definitely use the help. Um, this is uh, being a, an anti-cult activist and educator and doing what I do is not the road to fame and fortune. <laughs> uh, but the support that I get from you guys is really, really, really appreciated. And it is literally what allows me to keep doing this. So um, so please do support this channel. It, it means a lot. All right, guys. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.